Psalms 53. As strange as it might seem, I hope you dislike the subject of my sermon today. Uh, You might think I would say just the opposite of that. You know, you might think I'd say, you know, I hope you love what I'm preaching about today. But I really do mean it when I say I hope you dislike the subject of my sermon. And I have a good reason for saying that. Last week, I preached a message entitled, A Place for You. I I think on the... uh, on the website it says thinking about heaven, but the actual title is A Place for You, John 14, verse number 2. And the message had to do with God accepting us and giving us a home in heaven. Well, that's not the subject of today's message. You know, I would love to preach about heaven every single week. But there's more to be preached than that. Any faithful minister of God has to preach the bitter as well as the sweet. And uh, we have to give people what they need, not just what they want. And believe it or not, you need what I'm about to say this morning. The text for the message is found actually just one word in one verse here in this chapter, and we're going to read the entire chapter, and then I will explain why I hope you dislike the subject of my sermon. The fool hath said in his heart, there is no God. Corrupt are they, and have done abominable iniquity. There's none that doeth good. God looked down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there were any that did understand, that did seek God. Every one of them is gone back. They are altogether become filthy. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. Have the workers of iniquity no knowledge? Who eat up my people as they eat bread. They have not called upon God there were, there were they in great fear where no fear was. For God hath scattered the bones of him that encampeth against thee. Thou hast put them to shame because God hath despised them. Oh, that the salvation of Israel were come out of Zion. When God bringeth back the captivity of his people, Jacob shall rejoice and Israel shall be glad. Whenever we talk about God, it's almost always in the context of his love or or his power or his wisdom. And we are attracted to those attributes because they bring us some advantage. We think about the greatness of God's love. We think about His mighty power. We think about His great wisdom and all of these things that are a help to us. And we don't have any problem in saying that God loves us. But if I said of certain people that God despises them, you know, that uh, that might not be so very popular. But notice in verse number 5, where he clearly says, God hath 
despised them. You know, that's a shocking revelation to people that are strangers to the Scriptures because in their mind, it's totally out of character for God, the God they have imagined anyway, uh, to do something like that. They have no idea that the Bible says that God is angry with the wicked every day. They do not understand that God is holy, that God hates sin, nor that God is just, and because of that, that He must punish sin. Paul said in Romans chapter number 11, Behold the goodness and the severity of God. In other words, we need to keep our theology in proper balance, not only thinking about the goodness of God, but the severity of God. Not only is He a God of love, but He's also a just God and a God of wrath. The Bible declares that those who deny God, those who disobey God, dishonor God, disregard God, are despised by the Lord. I want you to really think about this word despise because the literal meaning of it, and by the way, it is translated by different English words in other places in the Bible, but the word simply means to reject or to refuse. It means that God has rejected them. God has refused them. It literally means forsaken. And that's the title of the message this morning, Forsaken. Those who forsake the Lord shall be forsaken by the Lord. And he tells us here, it says, they feared not the Lord, and so consequently they are filled with fear. Now that's the big picture, but I want you to look at the, at the small details that's found here in this psalm. First of all, I want you to consider the fact of sin. And we know it is a fact because God is a witness to it. It tells us clearly God looked down from heaven upon the children of men. God is looking. God is alert. God never slumbers. He never sleeps. All things are naked and open under the eyes of Him with whom we have to do. So nothing escapes the notice of God. Not only those outward deeds, but also the words that we speak and what is entertained in our heart. God sees all and about all of us. Every single thing. He knows every word, every deed. And since He can't lie, we can depend upon His testimony, right? So whatever He says here, we can depend upon it. We can know that His indictments are fair, and because he is righteous, that his judgment is going to be just. It's it's not simply a matter of God being displeased because he would rather we would do something else, but rather it's the fact that God is angered as a result of our rebellion against him, and consequently, because God is holy, our sin must be paid for in some manner. God wouldn't be a holy God if He just winked at sin, just ignored it and let it go by. And because God is all-powerful, rest assured that His judgment is sure. 
you know, we think so many times about people that commit horrible atrocities and, and, and they're sentenced to so many years in prison, maybe life in prison. And ten years later, they're out here roaming the street again. Now, let me tell you, whenever it comes to God's judgment, it's always going to be just and it's going to be final and He's going to carry out the sentence, whatever it is. There's not, not, not going to be getting off for good behavior in a short while. Be no such thing as hiring some high-powered attorney to, to distort the truth and to get you out of it because we're dealing with God who is all-knowing and ever-righteous. So there's not any doubt about the fact that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And this is the fact of sin as it's stated here based on the testimony of God Himself. But notice the fault of their sin. Verse number 1, he tells us to start with, and he repeats it in verse number 4, the fool hath said in his heart, there is no God. The very nature of those who are despised by the Lord is revealed by this declaration, there is no God. That describes what we're dealing with when we think about unsaved people. We think about those that are not Christians, whether they be, you know, in a high public office somewhere or uh, in, in authority in some other local government or whatever. We're dealing with people that, that claim there is no God and consequently because, you know, they're there's no God, no final authority to which I'm accountable. Notice verse 1 says they're corrupt. Verse number 4 says they're workers of iniquity. In verse number 4, he tells us about them persecuting God's people. You see, the fault with these people, the fault of their sin is iniquity. They're unrighteous. They're without any good. Now, that's contrary to what most people think today. Because most people believe that there is a spark of goodness in everyone. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible tells us that there's none good. No, not one. And this is the fault of their sin. They do not recognize God. And as a result of that, they are corrupt in their behavior, workers of iniquity, persecuting other people. But that brings us to the fountain of their sin. Where, where does all of this spring from? What is it that creates such a mindset as that as to think there is no God, no authority, so now I can do whatever I want? Sometimes we look around and we wonder, why is the world in the condition that it's in? Why do people do what they do? How can they commit such horrible uh, sins and uh, seemingly it doesn't even bother them. Well, let me tell you, it's not God's fault. They're like they are of their own accord. It's not God's fault because God is good to all and all of the time. The problem is with man. And the root of the problem, the fount of this problem is they says they say there is no God. In the 1960s when I started preaching, back then, so-called theologians, and this was spreading around the world, but so-called theologians, 
those that are supposed to know a whole lot more than us common people, they declared that God is dead. Vernon Grounds wrote, in their opinion, the progress of knowledge had made it impossible for thoughtful people to believe in God. These thinkers said, it's time to bury the idea of an almighty creator in the graveyard of abandoned myths. Let me tell you, that was much more popular than you realize. If you were alive back then and a student of the Bible, you know exactly what I mean. And our seminaries all of a sudden were being populated with professors that believed this nonsense. One British scholar and historian said, and I don't want you to miss this, listen carefully to what he said. From the perspective of human spirituality, the most extraordinary thing about the 20th century was the failure of God to die. Well, I've got news for you. God is not dead. He's alive and well. In fact, He's never been sick a day in His life. And whenever the stars turn to ashes, when this old earth is consumed with fire, when all is said and done and the heavens shall melt with fervent heat, when all of that is said and done, God will still be God. He'll still be controlling this entire universe. The fountain of their sin is all based on the fact that they say there, there is no God, so there's no authority, you know, uh, to dictate what I do. That means I'm free to do as I please. And, and all of that simply means they worship the creature rather than the Creator. Man creates a God in his own image. And we see in Romans chapter 1 exactly where that leads to where it says, finally, as a result of them going, doing things contrary to what nature teaches us even, and it says God gave them over to a reprobate mind. What does our text say? Our text says that God despised them, that is, God forsook them. And a society that forsakes God is going to be forsaken by the Lord. Now listen carefully. As far as you are personally concerned, God can be as good as dead if you deny Him. If you disobey Him, if you reject Him. Whenever you treat God as though He does not exist, His existence is of no benefit to you. When you treat God as though He does not exist, His existence is of no benefit to you. In fact, let me say this. If you're here today and you say, well, I I don't believe there is a God, as an unbeliever, you would be far better off were you right? You'd be better off to just, you know, if there's no God, you just live and you die like a dog and you go back to dust and it's all over. But the fact of the matter is, you are wrong. God is not dead. God is alive. God is real. And because of that, you must give an account of yourself to God. 
One of these days, whether you deny Him or not, you're going to stand before Him and give an account for the opportunity that you had here on earth. So the fountain of all of our sin is rooted and grounded in the fact that we refuse to give God His proper place to put ourselves under His authority. And that brings us to the folly of their sin, because what could be more foolish than that? To think about the incredible opportunity that we have, the glorious privilege that we have, that God has provided for us, and for us to throw all of that away. You see, God has revealed Himself through creation. I mean, a nitwit can look up into heaven at night and see the stars and realize that there must be a God. The most simple-minded country bumpkin out here understands that there is indeed a God. And God has revealed Himself through creation. God has revealed Himself with the gift of the Scriptures. In all of these privileges that we have of God revealing Himself to sinful man, and then there's the gift of His Son. A historical fact. And for someone to go on ignoring all of that, I I say that it is the very height of folly. It can't get any more foolish than that. And then to think that people do it over and over and over again. They live year after year after year that way. What folly that is. But it's more than folly. We need to think about the filthiness of their sin. Look at verse number 1. And notice he describes them, he says, as being corrupt. And whenever we talk about how how bad sin is... What we normally do is to think about it in the terms of how it affects us. We we think about that man that killed the little 11-year-old boy. And I, I mean, boy, we're outraged by something like that. We think about someone that is guilty of breaking up a family because of an adulterous relationship. And we think about all of these other horrible crimes. We think about child abuse and child neglect and all of these things. And and we see how sin affects us as a people. And it's horrible and it's terrible. But that's not the worst thing about sin. The worst thing about sin is the manner in which it affects God. Matthew Henry said, Wickedness is the greatest nastiness in the world. And he was right. This word corrupt here simply means it's decayed, it is spoiled, it's ruined, it's rotten. And in spite of what the Bible says about sin, we fail to see the seriousness of it. We, we underestimate the seriousness of sin. And we do that because we fail to grasp the holiness of God. I mean, who can measure how holy God is? It's above and beyond what our mind can possibly imagine to think about God being perfect in absolutely every way. 
And because of that, the smallest infraction against God's love is so terrible, so awful, that a lifetime of suffering in hell could not ever repay the wrong that we've done. Sin is awful beyond description. You know, you've heard people say, well, I don't understand how a loving God could send people to hell. How could God, you know, allow people to go to such a horrible, terrible, awful place as that? Well, you don't understand that because you don't understand the holiness of God, the greatness of His holiness. And it's not an indictment against God because, by the way, God has made provision that nobody has to go to that awful place. God gave His own Son. He wrapped Himself in a robe of flesh and condescended down here to this old sin-cursed earth and allowed Himself to be beaten and nailed to the cross and died shedding His own blood that we might be saved. How awful sin is. There's nothing worse. And when I say that, understand that the Bible says in regards to the law that if we violate in just one point, we break one link in the chain. We're guilty of having violated all of God's law. You you don't have to be a, a thief or a murderer to die and go to hell. All you have to do is to reject Jesus Christ. So many times we think, you know, and you hear people talk about being so good that they're bound to be in heaven. Really. None of us are going to be in heaven because we're good. Because it's not based on our goodness, it's based on His grace. It's not our merit, it's His mercy. It's only because of what He did that we're able to be accepted. Now notice verse number 4, the fruit of their sin. He says, have the workers of iniquity no knowledge, question mark, who eat up my people as they eat bread, they have not called upon God. The fruit of their sin is the fact that because of their lack of a relationship with God, that it affects their relationship with everyone else. Remember what the Lord said in Matthew chapter 23 or chapter 22 about the first and the great commandment. And he said, the second is like unto the first. You know, we're to love our neighbor as ourselves. You see, those two go together. And whenever we love God as we should, we just naturally have a love and a concern for others. And sometimes we look around us and we wonder what in the world has gone wrong with the world? Why do people do what they do? Why are we so unkind one to another? And it's all based on the fact because of our lack of a relationship with God. And people that deny God, people that resist God's authority, eventually become like brute beasts of the field. We're, we're talking about Hitler kind of stuff, killing six million Jews. Here we see that even back in those days that God's people were persecuted, not because they had done anything wrong, but because they were right. 
in saying that there is but one true and living God. And because of the correctness of their assertion, as a result of that, they were hated and despised. And let me tell you, that still goes on today. Whenever you stand up and let the world know that you believe in the true and the living God and that Jesus is the only way to heaven, people are going to hate you. In fact, the Bible says a man's enemy shall be they of his own household. We were so privileged to have Brother Moe with us the other, the other evening and what a, what a great message that was. And, and to think about the price that man paid in order to in order to serve the Lord to be disowned literally disowned by your own family and to put your life on the line you see the whole problem with the world is not a lack of education it's not a lack of uh, of the economy, you know, and stuff like that. It's all based on our relationship with God. When it's wrong, everything else goes wrong. Then notice in verse number 5, the fear in their sin. The fear in their sin. It says, there were they in great fear where no fear was. You see, sinful man can boast all he pleases about there being no God, no authority to which he is accountable, but his conscience tells him that's really not true. And that's why you find a religion of some kind in every part of the world. Because deep down somewhere in the depths of man's heart, he realizes that he has not lived up to the standard by which his life should be governed. He knows that. That's why people are religious by nature. And as a result of that, as a result of that, there is a fear of sorts of some kind in there that causes them to reach out trying to appease their God. That's why mothers throw their children to the waiting crocodiles in the Ganges. That's exactly why people go to great length to even the very giving of their lives in trying to appease the wrath of their God. And they have it all backwards. It's all based on maybe, hopefully, that we can do something that finally God will feel sorry for us and God will spare us from judgment. And Christianity is totally the opposite of that. These people have a fear where there is no fear. These people do not understand that the true and the living God has provided us a way of deliverance out of our sad condition. Notice what he says in the very next verse here because it shows us the faith of the saints. It says, Oh, that the salvation of Israel were come out of Zion when God bringeth back the captivity of His people. Jacob shall rejoice and Israel shall be glad. Now, this is talking here about the great God and the fact that He has made provision to deliver His people. Now, we look back on that and think historically about the Jews as a people. And what a wonderful thought it is to think about the restoration of a nation. 
And God is giving them this word of assurance that although you're being hated and you're being persecuted, there's coming a day when I'm going to deliver you. And we've seen that in a historical sense time and time again with the children of Israel. But if that is wonderful, stop and think about how much more wonderful it is to think about the redemption of a person. Um, We're not talking about deliverance from some cruel government. We're talking here about redemption. And by the way, this is where their final great deliverance was to come from. The promise of the Messiah that was demonstrated all through the Old Testament. Each and every Old Testament prophet took up the lamp of prophecy and prophesied the coming of the Messiah. That He is going to come and He's going to deliver us from the iron heel of the Gentiles and He's going to set us on high and He's going to exalt us and make us His people. And they lived every day of their life and for century after century the Jews clung to that hope that someday Messiah is going to come and deliver us. And the good news is He did just that. That little babe born in Bethlehem's manger that lived a virtuous life and died a vicarious death on the cross has made salvation possible for every man, woman, and child. Let me tell you, it's all going to end in glorious gladness in that final day where there will be rejoicing around the throne eternal. That's why we keep saying that for the Christian, the best is yet to come. What a wonderful hope that we have, knowing that provision has been made for our salvation to have the assurance that heaven is our home. But while for the Christian, the best is yet to come, for the unsaved person, the worst is yet to come to come. Notice God said of these people that He despised them, that is, that He had forsaken them. Sometimes when we think about hell, I I carry in my Bible a little poem that I heard many, many years ago that speaks about hell and describes it as best that man can. Hell, the prison house of despair. Here are some things that won't be there. No flowers will bloom on the banks of hell. No beauties of nature we love so well. No comforts of home, music, and song. No friendship or joy will be found in that throng. No children to brighten the long, weary night. No loving smile in that region of night. No mercy, no pity, no pardon, nor grace. No water, oh God, what a horrible place. The pains of the lost no human can tell. Not one moment's ease, there's no rest in hell. Hell, the prison house of despair. Here are some things that will be there. Fire and brimstone are there, we know, for God in His Word hath told us so. Memory, remorse, suffering and pain, weeping and wailing, but all in vain. Blasphemers, swears, and haters of God, Christ-rejectors while here on earth they trod, murderers, gamblers, drunkards, and liars will all have their part 
in the lake of fire, the filthy, the vile, the cruel, and the mean. What a horrible mob in hell will be seen, yet more than humans on earth can tell are the torments and woes of eternal hell. I've carried that little poem in my Bible for probably 40-some years now, and let me tell you, as bad as it is, that still does not get to the very heart of what makes hell so terrible. The thing that makes hell awful is the fact that those that are there are forsaken by God, forever separated from God. And while God's people can stand before Him and hear Him say, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. The most awful thing that anyone could ever hear is recorded there in Matthew chapter number 7 where the Lord says, Depart from me, ye workers of iniquity, for I never knew you. To be rejected, to be forsaken by God is the absolute most awful thing that could ever happen to anyone. And if you're here today and you've received Christ as your Savior, how thrilled you ought to be to know beyond any shadow of a doubt that heaven is your home. That, listen, you have been accepted in the Beloved. Think about that. Accepted by God. In spite of your sins, in spite of all of the bad things that could be said about you, God says, I'll accept you. Not because of any good you've done, not because I just feel sorry for you. I accept you because my son paid your sin debt. And we need to rejoice in that. But listen, as wonderful as it is to be saved, our heart ought to be stirred to think about our loved ones going to that awful place where they will be forsaken of God. Forsaken. Lost forever, doomed to an eternity of punishment. And you and I have the opportunity to do something about that. Let us never rejoice over our salvation and get so excited about it to the extent that we don't have time to tell others about Christ. You, you see, if we're not so careful, we can, just, we can just make it all about us. And the excitement and the thrill of knowing we're going to heaven and we gather every Sunday and we sing about heaven and it's all so wonderful. And at the same time, our own family members are dying and going to hell without Christ. God's given you, listen, if you have breath, God's given you and God's given me an opportunity to tell them about Christ. Don't squander that opportunity. Do whatever you can to show them that they do not have to step across the threshold of time and out into eternity and be forsaken forever, but they too can be accepted by God and welcomed into His heaven. Let's all stand together. Father, how we thank You for the wonderful provision that You've made.
And Lord, to think about the fact that we lived every day in our life as a vile, filthy, horrible, terrible sinner, and yet you made provision for our salvation, and how wonderful it is to know that in some way or another you brought us in contact with someone that cared enough to share with us the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, Lord, help us to care that much about somebody else. And Heavenly Father, if there are those here today that have never received Christ, help them to understand what an awful condition they're in, even at this moment, to know their one heartbeat away from eternity and to know that they'll be forever forsaken without Christ as their Savior. Speak to their heart and may the Holy Spirit draw them to the cross of Calvary and help them to see not only their need but the greatness of your provision that's found in Christ. For we beg it in his dear name. Amen. While we